In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Heavenly, gracious, and loving Father, we thank Thee and we praise Thee for the gift of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our God, our Divine Physician, the Healer of our bodies and our souls. In His name, send Thy Holy Spirit to us to guide, direct, and to lead us. We pray Thee that the truth of Thy Word and the faith of Thy Holy Church may take deep root in our hearts and bear forth much fruit in our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Uh, please uh, be seated. And um, so today we are uh, atoning, although in good theology you cannot atone. This is why Christ died for us, but uh, we are, uh, in a different sense, atoning for um, having December off and putting, uh, alas, putting the two great doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation into one, one session. Um, I do believe uh, that it will be a miracle, however, if we really do end up covering both uh, today, but we will certainly uh, do our best. I'd also like to send greetings more and more. I am receiving emails from people uh, from different places saying that somehow through the technology that Praveen Mutalik understands, uh, of which I do not understand, um, uh, um, people are, are, are finding us on uh, iTunes, iPad, what is it? Both. Okay. And uh, so anyway, so welcome uh, to, to all of them and, and blessings to them. So we begin with the mystery of the Holy Trinity. I had a, uh, a person uh, in the last couple of years, he belongs to, he's a friend of mine, and he belongs to the Christian Science uh, Church. Um, and uh, they, of course, have a, a different understanding of, of the, the Trinity than uh, um, the historic Christian Church does. Um, but he made a point which I found very valid, and it is this. If the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is so very important to being orthodox, to being biblical, how come so few people, including those in the pulpit, um, can even uh, give a basic uh, definition of the Trinity? Uh, in other words, if it's so central to who we are, how come we, we, we don't understand even uh, a, a, a basic, uh, have a basic understanding? And he's right in many ways. I think if you were to ask many people sitting in the pews uh, to give a concise definition of the Trinity, um, likely anything that came out of their mouth would be heretical. <laughs> um, although some would be maybe less heretical than others. Um, and so uh, it, it is. It is one of the essential doctrines of the Christian church and of God's revelation uh, to, to mankind, to humanity. Um, it's essential that as far as we are able, because the Trinity is a mystery in the true sense of, of the word, um, it's essential that we do have a basic understanding of, of the Trinity. But I also want to mention that in the early church, 
they were not as preoccupied as we are in our own day, uh, particularly in, in, in Western culture, in comprehending the great mysteries of God's revelation. Their focus in the patristic church was not, on so, not so much on comprehending the mysteries, but by faith, through fellowship in the church, through word and sacrament, to participate in the mysteries of Christ. And, you know, some people say, oh, well, that's a cop-out. Well, what if I were to use this analogy in my marriage with Christine? If I said it's more important to me to understand Christine than it is to share in Christine's life and for her to share in mine. Well, that doesn't sound unusual. And now, if, especially if we turn it around, if we said it's more important to Christine to share in my life than it is to understand me, you'd say, well, that makes darn sense, Father Michael, because you're, you're, you're you know, <laughs> it's not possible, right? I think, yes, that, yeah, that's it, yes, you get that, that's it. But uh, I think most women would, would agree, not about me particularly, but about men in general, <laughs> about me in particular, uh, about me in particular, but uh, that, that, yeah, they'll never really understand their man. If you remember that Johnny Cash song, Understand Your Man, well, probably not possible. So, um, so I want us to remember, although we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Holy Trinity today and trying to understand at least a, a, a basic, uh, non-heretical um, uh, definition of the Trinity, that what's most important is that we are able um, to, uh, to partake in what's called theosis, and that is that through the Holy Spirit and in Jesus to share in the life of God and to call Him our Father. So what matters more is that we share in the life of the Trinity than we understand the Holy Trinity. Okay? Um, but that's not to say that we cannot have any understanding of the Trinity. God has revealed um, things uh, about him, Himself. Um, I, I, I want to begin, uh, sadly, those on iTunes or I, whatever it is, um, uh, they really have ego problems, a lot of I in there. Uh, anyway, won't be able to see this, but this is a, a, a typical a diagram that's used uh, in explaining the Trinity. In fact, in my first um, Anglican church that I ever attended, St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Cheshire, Connecticut, um, there's a stained glass with this in it. And so, um, if I can see through it, uh, it's that, you know, God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. You can also go the other way. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. So, God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. That is the oneness of their essence, their being, their substance. There is one God, not three gods, only one God. And yet, there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. 
The Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. Okay. Um, and however, God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. That's the unity of their being, their essence, their substance, and yet they are uh, distinct in personhood in that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, etc. Um, I want to begin by doing, uh, giving a few analogies of the Holy Trinity to help us. Um, remember, all analogies to some degree fall short because you're trying to capture a, uh, a mystery, okay? Um, so all analogies fall short, and that's a nice way of saying that even the best of analogies at some level are going to be heretical, okay? Um, but, there are, but they do help us to begin to springboard into the great mystery which has been revealed to us by God as the Trinity, okay? Um, one is, if we remember, well, you may not remember, you may not have known this, you will today. Um, in the Holy Trinity, each person is distinct. What is distinct about the Father is that he is the soul, meaning only the soul, S-O-L-E, not S-O-U-L, okay? He is the sole uh, source of the Godhead. There is an order within God. In our um, culture, we will often equate order, or what might be called hierarchy, with inequality. Not necessarily so in the ancient mind, uh, where uh, order was not about equality, okay, um, uh, uh, and so um, something can be equal, though uh, distinct. Okay, so there's an order in the Godhead. The Father is the source or the fountain of the Godhead, from whom uh, uh, um, Jesus, as we know him in his incarnation, the Son of God, God the Son, the Word of God, is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. So the Father is the one that is the sole source of the Godhead, the Son is the one who is eternally begotten, and the Spirit is the one who is eternally proceeding from the Father who is the source of, of the God, of the Godhead. Um, and so the Father is not a superior creature. This is very important for us to understand if we are to understand God. We do not worship a being that is like us in any way, uh, in that God is not part of the creation, save the incarnation, okay? But he's not part of the creation. He is not a, uh, a being that is simply so beyond us in intelligence, uh, power, um, majesty, glory, that to us he is God. Okay? That is not the definition of, of God. God is not part of the creation. He is the creator. 
So the, the, the difference between a, uh, what's the most basic, an amoeba? Sure. That good? All right. The distance between an amoeba and us, okay, uh, as great as it is, if amoebas for a second could somehow have intelligent thought, we would seem like gods in comparison to them, right? Um, but the distance between an amoeba and us is still measurable. Why? Because the amoeba and human beings are both part of creation. We are creatures in the original sense of the word. We are creatures. Okay. The distance between man and God is immeasurable. Not seemingly immeasurable, truly immeasurable. So the distance between an amoeba and a human being can actually be measured as great as it is. The distance between man as a creature and God as the creator is infinite. So it's not that God is far greater than we are. He is infinitely beyond us. Okay, uh, So much so that he is not part of creation. So, for example, I can grow in the knowledge of God for, let's say, five million years. Will my knowledge have grown? considerably, to use a measurement of time, I'm a pretty smart dude, right? How much closer am I to attaining to the knowledge of God, however, in those five million years? No closer. Now, if the amoeba were to grow for five million years, it would not only be growing in that knowledge as it moved towards human knowledge, but actually would be much closer after five million years. Okay, we, however, can greatly. Yes. Um, and so we can grow in, let's say, the love of God for five million years, and we will have grown substantially in love, because God is the true source of love. And yet we will be no closer to attaining to the ends of the depths of God's love than when we first began. This is why, by the way, heaven is not boring. As high church as I am, even for myself, after a few billion years of, uh, of high mass, even I would become bored. Okay, But because there is no end to the depths of God's knowledge, his being, his glory, his majesty, his goodness, his truth, okay, we will be in one sense always being uh, fulfilled and always being filled, okay? In, in one sense, we'll always hunger because there'll always be more, and in another sense, we'll always be content with whatever stage we are at. But it will never be boring because we will become more and more and more and more like God forever. Growing in his love, his goodness, his uh, wonder, his joy, uh, his being. Okay. Um, um, so here are some analogies. 
God the Father as the source and, and, and fountain of the Godhead is truly ineffable. In other words, we cannot articulate, we cannot speak of God and in any, any way capture his essence. That's what ineffable, if I remember, uh, means. Okay. God is, in that sense, God the Father, unapproachable. The Bible tells us if we were to look upon God, we would what? We'd, we'd die. Yeah, actually it says we would die. Um, it'd be like a computer being overloaded, okay? You just can't take all that in because, because there's no end to the depth of it, okay? Yeah, and, and truly unapproachable. Uh, we, we truly cannot approach God. God, we are infinitely, as creatures, we are infinitely separated from God because we are creatures and He is the Creator. Um, and uh, uh, so in one analogy, and this is also used for a heretical understanding of the Trinity, but I think it can be tweaked a bit to be used in an orthodox way. Um, if we think I'm going to refer to the sun in the sky as a star, because technically it's a star, and I don't want to confuse S-U-N with S-O-N, okay? If we were to look uh, at uh, the star in our solar system, uh, just look at it, what would happen? We, we would go blind. What would happen if we got into a rocket ship and tried to approach the star? Yet not only burn, I mean, people think, oh, yeah, you, you I mean, you would actually be, be less than ashes. I mean, you got close enough, you would just kind of disintegrate, you, you know. Um, so in that sense, we can think of the star itself as the father. Uh, unapproachable, okay, uh, you cannot look directly upon him, um, and uh, and yet... If we cannot look directly at the sun without getting too technical, and you know, well, there's telescopes, so, you know, without getting too technical, if you can't look directly upon the star, how do we know it's there? You feel its presence. You feel its presence, yeah. and you behold its warmth, and its it's light. Yeah. It's light. So the light actually comes forth from the star, okay? Uh, the star itself is the source, and the light comes forth from the star. We know the star is there because we behold its light, and its light truly has as its source the star. We can also, however, even if we were blind, feel its warmth. If you were to lie on a beach... Right, you would feel that warmth uh, within you. So, um, if you think in this analogy, the star itself is the Father; it is He is the source, the fountain of the Godhead, from whom the light is coming forth. Okay, what the the use of the word would be eternally begotten. So who does Scripture say that the light of God is? And the warmth, uh, which really is the star. I mean, it's, it's reaching out to us. So is the light. In one sense, it is the star, and yet it's also distinct. 
The warmth is the Holy Spirit that you feel within you. You feel within you. Um, and so the reason I like that analogy, although it can be somewhat heretical, the reason I like that analogy is because you really cannot approach our star. Okay? You really, uh, um, very hard for us to comprehend uh, uh, the star, and you cannot look directly upon the star. But we know it's there because of its light and its warmth. And so the unapproachable God and Father is made known in His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. The one who is unapproachable becomes approachable in Jesus. The one who is ineffable, we actually call intimately our Father because of Jesus. And the one to whom we could never attain because the gulf was infinite, we could not attain to him, so he came to us. Jesus crosses the uncrossable gulf, the infinite gulf, in becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, the light of God has entered the world. Okay? And then the Spirit has been given as, as well. Um, another analogy to use science a little bit um, of um, another analogy of uh, uh, can something be one and yet be be three um, is uh, um, what is the substance of water? What is the substance of water? H two O. Technically now, is ice solid water? Mm -hmm. Technically. No, it's the solid form of H2O. Water is the liquid form of H2O. Okay. Steam is the what? Gaseous form of H2O. Um, in one way, they are in substance absolutely identical. The substance is H2O. The substance of steam is H2O. The substance of water is H2O. The substance of ice is H2O. And yet, they are very distinct. If someone said, uh, oh, I'm so hot, pour some water over my head, and you blasted them with steam, right? The experience is going to be a little bit different, isn't it? Right. Um, the thing is, the fact is, is that uh, H2O is water. H2O is ice. H2O is steam. Water is H2O. Ice is H2O. Am I saying this correctly? Steam is H2O. Right. Um, however, ice is is distinct from water. And water is distinct from ice, okay? And steam is distinct from ice and ice from steam. Now, where this analogy breaks down is that you can't have a personal relationship with ice, okay? Um, I joke that when I was teaching, well, it's true, but I, I, teaching this years ago, I used that analogy, and a man said, yes, you can. I was married to her for about four years, <laughs> and... Uh, but anyway, um, uh, you, can't, you know, all analogies break down because 
they're really about trying to grasp a little bit more fully the doctrine. But we must remember what's most important in the revelation of the Trinity is the relationship. Revelation is about relationship, okay? And that's very important. But it is possible for something to be one in substance and have three distinct manifestations, okay? That word manifestation gets a little tricky when talking about the Trinity, but um, it is, you know, it is possible. That's actually very Uh, helpful. mm -hmm. That's a good analogy. That was Sandra. (laughs) (laughs) Want this recorded forever? Yeah, it is. And, and yeah, and I think it's better than the, the, the one about the star, but what I've always liked, as I said, about the one with the star is the idea that uh, you can't look directly at the sun, S-U-N, you know, and yet we know it's there because of the light and the warmth. So if you kind of take those two things together, um, what is illogical, I was just reading a little, um, a little book uh, on the Trinity yesterday. I believe the author is Sproul. Um, and uh, anyway, one thing he says is that a lot of people say, well, and I'm a philosopher, and it's illogical to uh, you know, believe something can't be one and three at the same time. And he said it's interesting that these people, professors of uh, philosophy, um, will, will say this because they, they're not following their own logic. If you say a person, if you said there is one person who is three persons, that's illogical. But to say that there's uh, one God in essence, but three in persons, is not illogical. In other words, you can't say God is one in essence and three in essence. Right? You can't say God is one person and three persons. That's illogical. But to say that God is one in being and three in persons uh, is not illogical. All right, so let's look a little bit now. Um, by the way, for those of you who are following along, this first part of the teaching can be found on our blog, which is htacmass.org. H-T-A-C as in Holy Trinity Anglican Church, Mass as in either Massachusetts or the Mass, uh, whatever you prefer, but htacmass.org. Why is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity important? Christianity is a religion of revelation. This is very important for us to understand. This is what God has revealed. Okay. Christianity is a religion of revelation. God has revealed what he desires for human persons to know concerning his divine being in order to establish a relationship with them as his children. Revelation is primarily about doctrine? No, it's primarily about relationship. A relationship between the divine creator and his creation. Because God desires a relationship with us, a deeply personal and eternity-changing relationship, 
He has revealed himself to us through his holy word, the Bible. And of course, most profoundly through his word, the Son, S-O-N. You cannot truly know someone unless they choose to reveal themselves to you. I mean, you cannot really know someone or enter into a relationship with them unless they choose to reveal themselves to you. And the more they reveal themselves to you, the more you know them and your relationship with them grows. So the main reason that God reveals himself isn't so that we could be better than the other religions. It's not so that we can all have proper doctrine, okay, although it's important, and we'll get into why that's important later. It's so we can know him, so we can know the unknowable one, okay? Um, so you cannot truly know someone unless they choose to reveal themselves to you. Thus it is with God. God is revealing himself to you through his word and the life of his church. And it's fellowship, koinonia in Greek, through its scriptures, that is the word of God, and its sacraments, particularly holy baptism and holy communion. Through these means, and there are other means, but these are the primary means through which God reveals himself and shares in our life that we may become partakers in his life. Okay. And as I mentioned earlier, in the early church, what was important was not so much to comprehend the Trinity as much as to share in the life of the Trinity. It wasn't getting to know the Trinity for the sake of doctrine, but getting to know the Trinity for the sake of relationship. I like that. I may add that, actually. Make a note of that. Okay. <clears throat> it is important for you to know what God chooses to reveal to you concerning himself. So, I mean, when people make, you know, I, I love these ads. I, I can't remember what they're for, but they said, all right, we're calling in the relief pitcher. And the doctor comes running out of the bullpen and he's got his glove on and he throws the ball and hits the guy, you know, at bat and he starts chasing them. And he goes, you don't want your doctor doing your job. And the guy was a pitcher, right? Um, why are you doing his job? Well, it's absolutely amazing um, how many people have uh, real uh, convictions regarding theology, regarding God, and yet have spent so little time getting to know him. Getting to know him. Have, and also, by the way, having knowledge about someone is not the same as knowing them. The example I often use is if I tell you there's, that I have a friend that I know uh, very personally. Um, uh, he, he died, uh, sadly. Um, but I know him personally. <clears throat> um, I know his birthday. I know the day he died. Um, I know uh, what his dad does for a living. He's retired now, but I know what his dad uh, did for a living. I know his um, uh, mom's name. I know his brother's name. I know his sister's name. I know where he went to uh, college. 
I know um, his work uh, uh, very, very well. Does it sound like I know this person? I'm claiming that I do. Does it sound like I know them personally? It does, right? Well, I'm deceiving you. The person I'm talking about is Jim Morrison. Never met him. I know a lot about Jim Morrison, but I don't know Jim Morrison. Okay? Um, and so you can know a lot about someone. You can know all the statistics of Michael Jordan from, from high school days and college before his pro ball, right? Um, but that doesn't mean you know Michael Jordan, okay? So there's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing them. Um, and so I really would say to someone, if they say, well, I, I got an opinion, I feel very firmly that, my, you know, Jesus never would have said X, you know. And I said, well, first and foremost, you need to spend time getting to know him, okay, before you make this grand judgment, right? And so you know him through the fellowship of the church, through the proclamation of the word, through the sacraments, through prayer, through ministry. Let's get to know him. Um, otherwise, you are creating a God in your image based on your reason and what makes sense to you rather than being formed into the image of God through revelation. Isaac? Well, it's the difference between actually knowing a person and reading their biography. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, if we push that one even further, you can read the Bible and not really know, even though you yeah. read the biography. Well, yeah, and, and it is possible. There's a lot of people, I believe, sitting in the pews who know a lot about Jesus but don't know Jesus. And I sound like a raving evangelical now, but there is truth to that statement. You know, they know a lot about him but don't know him. However, what I discovered long ago, to use your example on the Bible, um, was, you know, the when, when I was growing up, I mean, I, I had no disdain for the Bible. The Bible was important. It was read in my house. Um, but I, I never understood that there was a, a power within the Word of God that could change my heart, that could lift me out of despair, could um, enable me to overcome temptation, could um, do numerous things. And um, I read it to know what was right, what was wrong, to know about the life of Jesus. Where was he born? Where did he do his ministry? Where did he die? How did he rise? What was the ascension? Um, but I didn't understand that there was a power. Then I met this strange group of people, more and more in my life, called evangelicals uh, from the planet Evangelists. Uh, and... Uh, and they were talking about this, you know, there's power in God's word to set you free. There's power in God's word to change your heart. There's power in God's word to, you know, and then one day it dawned on me, ah, they would never use this language, but they understand the word of God in a sacramental sense. It is something of the created order that is used as a conduit of God's grace and presence. And once I was able to fit it into my language, I, you know, I said, oh, it's a, it's a sacrament. 
the Word of God is a sacrament in that sense. There's a power that's conveyed through it. And that's why if we can open our heart to that, it makes the difference between reading the Bible as a biography and reading it as something that enables us truly to get to know God in an intimate way. Interestingly enough, uh, in reference to the Eucharist, and and we we covered this, I believe, when we we talked about the Eucharist, the the word that St. Paul uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the intimacy that we share uh, in, in, by receiving Holy Communion, the intimacy we share with Christ has the same root word, koinonia, has the same root word uh, as a man and woman engaging in sexual relations, where they are no longer two, but one. Um, where they're, it sounds very poetic, but almost lost in one another. Um, and this is the language that he uses of this level of intimacy that we have with with Christ as the groom and we the church as his bride when we receive Holy Communion. And baptism then becomes our spiritual marriage to Christ. Holy Communion becomes that which nurtures, nourishes, realizes, lives out, expresses, strengthens that spiritual union that we have received. Just in the same way as a husband and wife, and Paul makes this clear, are supposed to be married, they're spiritually one, but that union, that spiritual union, because we are both body and soul, has to be nourished, nourished, realized, lived out, expressed, and that's the sexual act. Um, and, you know, they really go together, you know. Um, and uh, so, um, yeah, it's, it's through the sacraments and through the Word of God and the fellowship of the church that if we open our hearts to its power that these are the means where we literally come to know Jesus. In the biblical sense, since we're talking about the Bible, you know, we come to know him, to literally partake in him, um, uh, and to become one with him, and it, which he says, and I will dwell in you and you in me, you know, uh, in, in John chapter 6. So it's important for you to know what God chooses to reveal to you concerning himself. For example, God is eternal love, the source of life, the font of truth, the essence of being. God is one. God is Trinity. This is what he has revealed and what we are receiving uh, as, as a gift. So, for example, if you really want to understand yourself, you have to understand yourself in relationship to God. So, I, I always say there's, there's two types of love. If someone has God, who is true love, brings back the Princess Bride, true love, anyway. Um, <laughs> um, if, you, if you have as the source of your love God... Okay, and this is why Jesus has these weird things like he who doesn't hate his mother or father or spouse or, you know, you know, and you're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? What he's saying is that it's not supposed to go like between myself and Christine. It's supposed to be that I'm in love with God. Christine's in love with God. Then he becomes the source of our love and relationship with one another. Then it's true love because its source is God. 
if the source that you're giving is the love in your own heart, okay, then it's going to be finite. There's a point where it will run out. For some people, about three weeks. <laughs> For other people, it could be 50 years. But I always say that um, it's kind of like the difference of uh, um, the, the first one, the former, is more like if uh, Praveen teaches me everything he knows about computers. Okay, He's a source of knowledge for computers. He teaches me everything he knows. Am I going to grow in knowledge? Yes. Is he going to be less in knowledge? No. So God is the source of love. So if you want true love, one must seek to know God. Because then, as we receive that love, we will grow in love, but God never has less love. However, the latter is like the gift of a piece of pie. Okay? If I have the best pie in the world, and I, it's cut in eighths, and Sandra says, well, can I have a piece? Okay. And I give her one. She now has a piece of pie. She has more pie than she did before because she had no pie. <laughs> Silly kitten lost your mitten. Now you will have no pie. Uh, yeah, right? But I now have what? Less pie, which is why you're not getting another piece, little girl, right? Less pie. So when the source of love between, let's say, a husband and wife is their, their own selves, it's like the pie. When it's gone, it's gone. But if it's God, then that can be renewed every day. But for people to really make judgments about this stuff, they have to get to know God. It's just like I can't be a doctor, right? Because I'm not a doctor. It, but it seems that everyone in the world is a philosopher and a theologian, right? They'll say, I can't comprehend creation. Physicists will tell you, why are there laws of gravity? They have no idea why there are laws of gravity. They just are. Why is the, you, you know, uh, other, all these other stuff, right? Um, why do these th things happen? People say, oh, yeah, no, we have no idea. Yeah, we'll never fully understand all the mysteries of the universe. Oh, okay, what about the creator of the universe who is infinitely beyond? Yeah, I got that one all wrapped up, right? And it's not based on what he has chosen to reveal in order for us to enter into relationship. It's based on what makes sense to them. Now who's claiming to be God in the source of revelation? Yourself and your own reason, People will say, oh, Christians are arrogant, you know, because they claim Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I don't see anything arrogant about a God who's infinite, who becomes finite, who is infinitely majestic, who becomes humbled, uh, who takes on humility, who's born in a stable and dies on a cross. Uh, who emptied himself out of love and literally, if you remember my Christmas Eve sermon, crawled through the crap in order to save us. Nor is there anything arrogant about Christianity when Christianity is the only religion that says, can't get there from here, right? In all other religions, in some religions, it takes many, many lifetimes, but you will eventually attain 
In other religions, you only have one lifetime to do it, but you will attain to God. Christianity is the only one that says, arrogant, huh, there's no way I can do it. I will never be able to attain to God. I can never save myself. So it's interesting that people claim that Christianity is arrogant because the God of Christianity emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, knelt down and washed the feet of his children, right? And the Christian says, I can never attain to God. I am saved by him. It's not my doing, but by God. I can't even stand on my own two feet. What's arrogant is to say, I will tell you what I choose or exclude or what's true and what's not true or I believe without ever getting to know God. But people don't think of it that that way. You know, that way. Okay. Um, if we do not know God, we cannot truly know ourselves, for we have been created in his image and likeness. So everyone's trying to find themselves, right? You must first find God before you will ever know yourself. Okay. The mystery of who you are is found in your relationship with God. Thus God has revealed himself to the world that you may know him and be known by him and come to know your true self. As St. Augustine, this is Augustine of Hippo, wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our heart can find no rest until it rests in thee. So we can plug ourselves into degrees. We can plug ourselves into um, uh, the world. We can plug ourselves into money. We can plug ourselves into pornography. We can plug ourselves into food, sex, drugs. I don't know. What's your favorite? <laughs> right? Anything. Coffee. <laughs> right? Um, Diet Coke. I really like Pepsi better, but anyway, take what I can get. Um, and we it will sometimes think for a little bit, oh, I'm a little bit happier. We can plug ourselves into another person. But in the end, it always falls short. We're always left actually more hungry than when we first began. And we're a little bit deader <laughs> than we were before. It is only when we are going to know God that we come to know ourselves. Bless you. In psychology, that's called the hedonic treadmill. Tell me more about it. I don't, I don't know. Uh, well, hedonic, the basis, hedonism. Hedonism, yeah. And, and what happens is you end up on a hedonic treadmill because what you have is no longer enough, so you need more, so you go faster, further. Yeah. It's a treadmill. It's, mm-hmm. it's a trap. Yeah, right, absolutely. And, and that's exactly what Jesus means where, you know, we think we're free and making all these choices. And at some level we are free, but we are really, as I say later in this article, under the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in one sense, yes, we are free moral agents and we are making choices. But in another sense, we are greatly compromised and are under the influence and we are not making choices. We are actually slaves of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know. um, 
You know, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, if I was tomorrow from the pulpit, say, raise your hand if you have been or still are, either in totality or in part, a slave to Lucifer, Satan. Probably no one would raise their hand, right? But everyone should raise their hand, right? Or your own fleshly desires. It's interesting, though. Uh, What comes to mind when you say fleshly desires? For me, it was Chinese food. That popped right into my mind. Uh, Yeah, which, uh, anyway. um, My wife would be happy to hear that, I think, you know? (laughs) But anyway. um, (laughs) Thou hast made us for thyself, and our heart can find no rest until it rests in thee. Doctrine is never meant to be an end unto itself. This is very important. Doctrine is never meant to be an end unto itself. These are the people that know a lot about God but don't know God because they got stuck in the doctrine. Now, the other is not healthy either to throw out all doctrine because you're going to get lost. Okay, But doctrine is never meant to be an end unto itself. God is not a doctrine. God is life. True doctrine is revelation and revelation is living. It is God-breathed. What's the word for spirit? Breath. The breath of God. Jesus is the word of God, and the spirit is the breath of God. Uh, his word and his breath. Okay. Um, revelation is a divine invitation to know the very heart of God. Imagine, to know the unknowable and to call him Father. Um, the other day, uh, some of you know, um, uh, uh, <laughs> this is going to go on the iPad, so maybe I, I shouldn't use a name, but uh, a person that's been attending our church um, uh, for quite some time, and I've been working with uh, uh, in doctrine uh, for quite some time, um, the other day uh, came to a decision that she will be baptized on the 27th of this month. Now, this was a very big decision for her um, because uh, of her family situation. This has huge implications um, at, at, at every level. Um, but what was uh, uh, interesting is that uh, this person came over to the house uh, for continued uh, catechesis, and uh, um, and Sarah and Rebecca were there. And I said, oh, you know, she's going to be uh, baptized. And I said, do you know what that means? And Rebecca, I, I, I should use this at the sermon on that. In fact, I remind me to use this at the sermon on the 27th. Rebecca said, yeah. Everything that's Jesus's will be hers. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I was like, wow, she's listening. Because what I have said is that what is Christ's by nature becomes ours by grace, by a gift, by adoption. So Rebecca put it in her words. Everything that's Christ's will be hers on that day. So life for eternity with the Father, being able to have that relationship, you know, where God is our Father, is only because we're adopted into Christ's relationship with the first person of the Trinity. This is why you can't call 
godmother. It's not because there aren't feminine images for God in, in the Bible. There are. Um, and it's not because God is, the Father is a man, because he's not. He's a spirit. Okay? The reason is because we are invited in by, as a gift, by adoption, we are invited into the relationship that has been present for all eternity between the Son and the first person of the Trinity, his Father. So we, we, we can't, we're not invited in to have our own relationship. We're invited into that relationship. And he calls him Father. So it's not about, you know, God being a man with a long white beard and, you know, kind of old and a little bit crotchety and, you know, every once in a while wipes out people because he's so upset. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that he's a male. Okay, masculine, but there's also feminine imagery. There is for Jesus. Jesus himself uses some feminine imagery for himself, and he was a male, okay? Is a male. Still is. Body's risen, um, right? But he uses some feminine imagery. Uh, when talking about Jerusalem, how I've longed like uh, a hen who collects her chicks. What, what's the passage? Does anyone know off the top of their head? Under her brood under her wings, like a, like a mother hen co- collecting her brood under her wings. So I have longed for thee, O Jerusalem. You, you know, that, that idea. Okay. Um, so, um, doctrine enables persons to stay on course in their relationship with God. For a relationship to be healthy, it must have boundaries. Okay. Um, this, this, this was something that um, there's a, a young woman we came to know quite well at the coffee loft. Uh, she was the, the coffee barmaid. I don't know what you would... Barista. Okay, that, that sounds much nicer, actually. So, um, and we, we got to know her uh, quite well. And, you know, and, and she was talking to me one day about, you know, this whole idea where people say, oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And I always say, well, as scary as that is, um, because they'll say, I don't believe in organized religion. And I always say, why? You don't think God's organized? The first thing he does is bring order out of chaos, right? right? But anyway, uh, as scary as it is when people say, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious, I'm more scared by the people that are religious but not spiritual. And I have, you know, we all have them in the church, you know what I mean? They're, so uh, that's more scary to me. But anyway, um, uh, was, was uh, talking to her, and I said, um, you know, remember, God doesn't reveal boundaries uh, in our relationship with him so he can zap us. It's about having a healthy relationship. Now, this young woman was, was married, uh, is still married. And I said, for example, um, are there boundaries in your covenant relationship with your husband? He has certain freedom, right? Yeah. Well, can he do X? No. And if he does, what happens? I'll kill him. Okay. So, what you're saying is that there are boundaries within your marriage. It's not an open marriage. Why? Because an open marriage would be unhealthy, right? Um, And so, you have boundaries in the covenant. Well, guess what? God has a covenant with us. God has a covenant with us. Um, 
so that's why uh, there are boundaries. Doctrine establishes the boundaries of our relationship with God. Okay. Uh, part two. Any questions, thoughts, reflections so 